0: Being quick. Mm-hmm. I love what Ruth said about, um, she said, we grieve because we love. We grieve because we love. As, as it turns out, the one who gets the brunt of our most powerful feelings, both positive and negative, turns out to be the one who figures largest in our, emo- our emotional landscape. And as people of faith, we are going to find that when we grieve, It is often God who will be at the focus of our grief. Um, The question was asked, what if people want to blame God? Well, you know, the way I think about it is, in in the cosmic sense, it is God's fault. (laughs) I mean, seriously. We are here because He made us. You know, it's just like my sons, when they're grieving, you know, and they've said this to me, well, I didn't ask to be born, you know. (laughs) And and, and in one sense, it is my wife and I's fault that they are suffering, right? If they're having a bad time, you know, we could kind of take responsibility for that. Um, But we would have done it, like Ruth said, even knowing the grief that they would experience or that we would experience. Love compels us to give, to love, even when we know great pain will ensue. The Bible says that Jesus was... was, um, sacrifice from the foundation of the world. That before God spoke us into being, He knew the grief it would cause Him. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? You know, and if you really think about it, the world is such a sorry place, any of us who have kids should probably be shot, you know? I mean, (laughs) seriously, you kind of knew what you're bringing them into, but you did it anyway. And it's because we have a sense that at the end of it all, it is all worth it, and all will be well. That confidence is what allows us to be with people in their grief. There's a woman named Julian of Norwich who um, was a mystic that was, uh, lived in, I think, the 1400s, 1500s. Somebody you want to help me out here? Anyway, Julian of Norwich um, wrote uh, down these visions that God gave her, and they're called showings. Um, and a lot of them were not very encouraging. You know, a lot of them uh, dealt with the suffering that was going to come on the earth. But at the end, the, the very last thing that Julian says is this, and all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Isn't that great? That at the end of the day, we do not know how things will, will go. We don't know what is over the next hill, what valley we may have to go through, what river we may have to ford. But we do know that at the end, all will be well. And as we deal with people who are in their grief, we invite them to go through that valley, that river of suffering. We allow them to, we encourage them to deepen their experience of their grief so that as they walk through it, they can, they can experience some new possibility, some new horizon. And what Ruth was saying was that we we dare not try to explain away someone's guilt by giving them a pat answer. God himself had the ability to show up for Job and kind of lay things out and say, oh, well, Job, you know, you're suffering, but be of good cheer because sometime in 2011, this big group of people are going to be studying lay counseling. They're really going to benefit by your suffering. It'll all be worth it. Like, thanks a lot. You know, that is not going to help, right? All Job knew is that he had lost all of his children, all of his wealth, all of his cattle, all of his servants in a single day. His, his life was obliterated and he hurt. And God will not <clears throat> enter into our grief and rob us of our right to feel pain when we suffer loss. God honors our pain. And the thing I love about the Psalms is that David honored his grief with God. He, no matter what he was feeling, He brought it straight to God. You know, you notice, even though he was being hunted down like a dog by Saul, he's not ranting and raving against Saul. Even though at one point his wife, Michael, was ragging on him about being perverse and dancing wildly through the streets, he's not writing a psalm of, you know, frustration with his wife. Whatever happens to David, where does he go with his pain? He goes to God. And as counselors, we get to stand in God's place. We get to be a minister of His presence, and we demonstrate through our calm presence, our stillness, and our receptivity that God is near when we are in pain. In this model that we're using um, in the in the first stage of the of the transaction, the connection, we are very active. We move toward the person. We Speak words of comfort and counsel and, you know, we, we try to embrace them in, in a figuratively, figurative way to create that connection. But when it comes to confession, we become very still. We become very small in the room and allow the person to bring forward whatever is there. And we resist like heck the urge to, to fix it or make it better. Our job is to be like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, a place where people can come to pour out their grief. And when, we, when, it, it, when they get on the other side of it, then we can offer some counsel, some, some comfort, some course correction. But in the midst of their grief, we must be very still and very small. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Um, we, we're using the Beatitudes as our sort of framework And um, the the beatitude that we've been dealing with in this grief is number two. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The promise is that if we go through the, the river of suffering, we'll come out to the other side into some fresh territory. The goal is to let go of what we can no longer have in order to embrace something that is now possible. The companion beatitude with blessed are those who mourn is number six. And that beatitude says this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, there's a handout in your, in your book, and we're not going to look at it right now, but it's called Mixed Motives of the Counselor. If your motive in working with someone is to feel good about yourself, to feel helpful, to make it better, to take away pain, if you've got some motives that um, are impure, you are going to try to be God for that person. But if you get your motives out of the way and you're willing to sit with someone like Job's, did, Job's friends did for that first seven days, then you can see God be God. When you let go of your need to make it better, you'll see God make it better. When you, the, the, the magic that, um, that Ruth was referring to is when you enter into someone's experience and reflect back to them what, the, what they're feeling in an accurate way, you give them the opportunity to move from where they are to the next place if you if you join them where they are then they can move forward but if you try to give them a different perspective than what they got right then almost without question they will resist it so we we enter in with them we engage with them one thing that I often do with people who are grieving is to encourage them um, first of all to open up a dialogue with God no matter how angry they are reminding them of, that he has broad shoulders and at the end of the day, he is willing to take responsibility for a life, surrender to him. He doesn't mind it when we call out to him in our frustration, our anger, our despair, our, our uncertainty, like, Job, like David did in the Psalms. He doesn't mind if we say, why are you so far off? And it's very important to me that you hear today, and I'll probably say it again, that there are times in the life of faith when God is far off for the people who love him. Just like a mother will sometimes, after the, the infancy stage, will leave her child with a sitter or, you know, take the kid to school or whatever, she, she, she separates herself from that child. It is a source of grief for the child, but it's ultimately for the child's best interest. When, when we fail God, we find His faithfulness toward us. But when God fails us, when He doesn't show up for us the way that we feel He should, that's when we find our faithfulness to him, and that's what Job found in the midst of his suffering. So, um, I would encourage you just to, to um, make sure that if there's grief in your life that you have not dealt with, that you invite God into that. And it may be something that you've dealt with in the past, maybe you've taken a few layers of, off the onion of your grief. But if, if there's still something there, if you cannot talk about something from your past without getting into a, into a bad place emotionally, there's probably more work to be done. Because I can promise you, if you have not done your own work of grieving, you are not going to be able to be still and calm with someone when they tap into their own grief. You're not going to do it. It's going to make you uncomfortable, um, and you're going to try to shut it down. And you're going to do them and yourself a big disservice. Uh, one, more, one more thing about grieving that I find very helpful is to remind people that avoiding all the negative feelings is not healthy. Denial will keep you stuck. But it's also not healthy to live in them 24-7. And so I encourage people to keep a journal of their grief, to buy a special book, um, especially when it's a significant loss, and to, to either once or twice a day spend about 20 minutes writing down their thoughts and feelings. Purpose to focus on those feelings once or twice a day and then put that book on the shelf... And when those feelings come and you're at work or, you know, doing something that you really don't need to be focusing on that, you remind yourself, those feelings are important, but I've got a time and a place to deal with them. Grief comes in cycles and it comes in waves. And you can't, you can't rush it, but you can slow it down. Um, and so just encouraging people to, you know, to ride the waves. You know, sometimes it feels scary if you've ever been out in the ocean, when a wave comes in... If you, if you ride it, it lifts you up off the ground and you feel like, oh, where am I going? Um, but it's so much better than trying to keep your feet on the ground and getting, you know, smashed in the face with the wave. Um, teaching people to ride the waves of, of their grief will really help them to get more comfortable not feeling in control. Um, so much of the life of faith is based on trust and letting God be God. Even when we don't see where he's taking us, and so much of the things that that you shared, Ruth, I think were very um, uh, helpful in helping us recognize how we as counselors can help people ride the wave of grief. So, okay, well, um, I want to just take a few minutes to segue into um, conflict, and um, there's some handouts. Um, there's two of them in your book. Uh, I mean, two of them that ha- that are uh, they're not in the book. They they're on the table. Two of them that have holes in them that you can put in your book. Um, the first one says, take it to the cross. And the second one shows, also says, take it to the cross, but it has this little diagram. Um, what I want to do is, is um, share with you a model of conflict resolution that I have found to be extremely helpful. Um, I use it a lot with couples, but um, we also use it with families and um, in work situations. It's a model that I think really fits very well with the model that we are learning about counseling and that going through it will help reinforce some of what we're talking about in terms of taking people through a process. Um, there are some ground rules for this model and if you want to refer to the um, the page that has the writing on it, it says take it to the cross, um, it says it's a tool for conflict resolution and th- this ha- particular handout is one we use it with our couples retreats so it focuses more on couples but it really is applicable to any any group. Um, There are two reasons for the name. One is that the cross, for us as Christians, is a symbol of reconciliation, that peace comes at a price, and that if we want to have peace in relationships, we must be willing, as Jesus was, to endure the cross, to face death to self. Um, The second reason is that, that the steps of this tool are actually laid out on the floor in the shape of a cross, Now, you can, um, if you don't want to use the whole tool, you can use this little diagram and use something, a little object like a Hershey's Kiss or whatever to kind of walk through it. But you'll find that it's most effective if you'll actually um, lay these cards down on the floor and walk through the process. Um, The first thing you want to do is set aside a time to address an issue, and you agree upon the ground rules. One is that you stick to one issue at a time. What happens for a lot of us is, is our conflicts are interconnected. So we start with one issue, and before long, there's a half a dozen on the table. This tool helps you to stick with one issue. Also, um, you, you want to agree that only the person who has the floor will speak. The other person will maintain complete silence. This is tough. But um, if you need to use duct tape, you do it. Um, because so much of what happens in, in conflict is that escalation um, occurs when when people start going back and forth with each other. Um, Sticking to that ground rule will completely short-circuit escalation. Also, um, you don't want to have any problem-solving session that would last any longer than an hour. Typically, I encourage uh, people to set aside a 30-minute or 45-minute span to do it. And wherever you are in the process at the end of the time, you stop. It's such good discipline. And you'll find that so often... Um, the resolution to the conflict will only come when each person involved is willing to let the information they've received settle and be sorted through the Holy Spirit in order to come to resolution. If you try to hammer each other till you get to to agreement, it is going to be ugly, and probably what's going to happen is one person or the other will simply capitulate and say, fine, we'll do it your way. So if you stop and separate. Then it gives God a chance to speak into the situation, to highlight those things that are of most uh, importance. Um, the person who raises the issue should go first, and they will stand while the listener is sitting. And I'm going to, um, I'll demonstrate this in just a minute. Can somebody give, bring a chair up here? Um, just bring, would you bring me a chair? Um, the, the person who, is, who has the floor will stand and we'll actually walk through the... Thanks very much. We'll walk through the, um, the process while, they're, um, while the other person or persons, if it's a family or a group situation, while the others are seated. What I find is that when people are dealing with sensitive issues, they often become very closed emotionally. And when you're sitting talking about a highly charged issue, people have a tendency to, to, to close off from one another. Um, when you're standing it creates a little bit more vulnerability and a little less ability to um, shut yourself off and be uh, closed off emotionally. So just that particular um, aspect of the, this, this tool I find very helpful. The other part of it is that we, because you're walking through this, this uh, process, it feels a little bit like playing Twister or, or uh, uh, playing some game, so it keeps it a little bit less from feeling like a, a battle or a war. Okay, um, so here's, here's what's going to happen. We're gonna, I'm going to just kind of walk you through what it might look like. Um, and then I would encourage you, if you want to at lunch, or um, if, especially if you're here with your spouse, um, or if you're not here with your spouse, pair up with someone and just try talking through an issue using this particular uh, structure. If you don't have an opportunity or don't want to do it at lunch, please, before the end of the day, try to walk through this with someone. It doesn't have to be an issue that you're in conflict over, but an issue that you have conflicting feelings about, Um, some issue that you need to process. For my wife and I, it might be um, this whole move and the feelings that are stirred up. We're actually on the same page about selling our home and buying this new one, but it's often very helpful to go through a process that encourages you to unpack your feelings Because, as Ruth pointed out, even positive things, um, changes cause a mix of feelings, and often we are ambivalent even about um, the best things in life. Okay, so um, what what will happen is um, you will pick the time, you'll define the the what the issue is, and whoever has brought up the issue is going to go first. Um, At the oh, do we have is Gundy back there? Did Gundy leave? Is he there? Oh, okay, I can't see him. Um, oh, good. I think we're going to have it up on the screen, hopefully. What you're going to do is start at the, the person who's, who's going first will start at the, at the head of the cross. When you put these down on the floor, you're going to put them down in the, in the shape of a cross, and the one at the top will be the issue. This is what we need to address. Um, as we said in our our, our model of, of counseling, the first issue is to define what, what the need is. And I, I said last time, two weeks ago, that one of the first questions I asked people, if you had to put in a one or two sentences, what, why you're here, uh, what would you say? I asked them to, to narrow that down. And so this particular thing, uh, this particular step is just defining the issue. And so, for instance... Let's say um, I wanted to talk to my wife about um, how much we're going to spend on uh, the move and, and buying, because the house is very different than one we're in, we're going to have to buy some new furniture. So let's say the issue is how much we're going to spend on furniture. Um, that may be something that we will end up being very close in agreement about or wildly different. <laughs> um, but let's, let's say that's the issue. The second thing you want to do is say what I want. This is my ideal. You might even say what I wish. Because we're talking about living in a fallen world, there's always going to be a gap between the ideal and the real. And so um, if we are talking about buying furniture for a a home we're moving into, my ideal might be, I might say, Honey, what I wish is that we had an unlimited budget. I wish you could get whatever you want. I wish you didn't have to even think. Think about money, okay That's what I want, and it's important for her to hear that. Many of us are, are so used to not having what we want that we even we don't even go there. We don't allow ourselves to dream, we don't allow ourselves to wish. But if you don't, you're robbing yourself of the ability to recognize that in any issue that I have with my boss, with my coworker, with my mate, with my kids. It's really true, true that very rarely do any of us get exactly what we want, right? Sometimes in a marriage, it's tempting to think, well, you always get your way. Well, the truth is we really don't. We have limited resources. We have limited time. We have limited availability. And the truth is we almost always have to make compromises when we deal with an issue. So saying what I wish is really important. Once you've done that, then you go to the, um, to the arms of the cross are, do, are we, do, can we get the power? Do we have the PowerPoint? What's wrong? Oh, you don't have the converter. Oh, okay. I'm, I thought you said you'd found it. Okay, so the arms of the cross are how I feel and what I think. And at this point, it's very important to realize that we, both, we have a subjective uh, aspect to our problem solving and we have an objective aspect to it. On the subjective side, how I feel, I may have some very powerful emotions with regard to any issue. If it's finances, we often have really strong feelings. You know, like, sometimes I feel like you don't even care about the finances. I feel like I have to do everything when it comes to the bills. Then I might say, what I think is, you really are pretty good with money. But sometimes it feels like I always have to rein you in. Sometimes I think that um, we're never going, you're never going to be satisfied or I feel that you're never going to be satisfied. What I think is we both really, at the end of the day, agree on our priorities, but sometimes I feel sad that we can't always be on the same page. Going back and forth between thoughts and feelings really helps you unpack a lot of what's behind the issue. And a lot of times what happens is when people do this, they, become too, they come to a, a deeper awareness of themselves. Um, the second stage, this whole thing of confession, um, so much of, of what we want in this tool, as in counseling, is for people to grow in their understanding of themselves so that more intimacy is possible. You can only have intimacy to the level you have self-understanding. And unfortunately, most of the time, we want to, uh, we, we want to go too quickly over our hopes and fears, our thoughts and and, uh, deep feelings to try to be pragmatic and solve the problem. Or we we get into a judging mentality and try to prove that we're right. This process um, encourages people to use I statements and not you statements. I feel, I think, I want. Because it's so tempting when you're when you care about someone, you care about an issue, it's so tempting to shift from where i am to where i want you to be. to try to move you and to tell you where you're wrong and you, you know, you're messed up and i can i promise you whenever the conversation shifts in that direction, it produces death. It produces a legal transaction that will always end in judgment. It, when people go to court, um, the, the net result is a judgment. When the judge puts the gavel down, it's a judgment, and judgment kills. And I can tell you it's a hollow victory when I convince my wife that I'm right. It is. I mean, I'm telling you, she's like, okay, fine, you're right. What? I'm right? She says, yeah, you're right. Okay, fine. How do I feel? Do I feel great? No. And, and ironically, if you talk to people after they have gone through a courtroom battle, what you find is that the people who win are no more satisfied with the judgment than the people who lost. Isn't that amazing? It's crazy. But but if you actually look at the studies, most of the time, the person who wins the case, case is no happier than the person who lost. So when it comes to conflict, the cross... Um, sets aside law. The cross sets aside judgment. The cross is a place of grace, and that's what we're inviting people to do. Once you've gone through thoughts, feelings, wishes, fears, all that at the arms of the cross, being very open with what's, what's here, then you can proceed down to the proposal. It's amazing to me. Um, often I'll meet with a couple and I'll, I'll ask them, can you ever remember a significant issue that you were in conflict about that you resolved to the place that you both felt good about the decision. And probably seven times out of ten, and maybe it's more like nine out of ten, couples have a hard time thinking of an issue, a significant issue that they resolved in that way. Now, they've had lots of resolution. They've had lots of conflict. But it's typically one just giving in to the other one. Okay, fine. We'll paint the walls mauve, you know, or, or, you know... What are, you know, whatever the issue is, one has deferred to the other, but not in a way that really reflects, Woo, you're my hero. Can you back it up a little? Oh, yeah, no, no, that's good. No, no, that's, that's, that's perfect. Yay, you're brilliant. Thank you, Gundy. Um, but, but what happens is that, that we fail to realize that God puts us with another person for a reason, that two heads really are better than one. Um, If you think about our eyes, we have two eyes for a reason. It's not just that we have a spare if we get one poked out. I had one of those grandmothers who was always, you know, warning us that if we ran with a stick or whatever, we're going to poke somebody's eye out. Um, God gave us two eyes for a reason. What do we have with two eyes that we don't have if we just had one eye for vision? We have depth perception. We can see kind of around things so we can have a greater depth of perspective. What else do we have with two eyes that we would not have with one. Breadth. We, pers- we have peripheral vision. We see a bigger scope of the horizon with two eyes than with one. And, and the, the sad thing is that so many couples are in relationships where they both have very different perspectives on life, very different problem-solving strategies, very s- different priorities, but they never learn to bring them into sync so that they're seeing the same thing. Um, what we know about people's eyes is that our brain is in control and is able to, to keep them focused in the same direction. In an ideal situation, whether it's a, a marriage or a work partnership or whatever, we allow God to help us focus in the same direction. If we don't have that, what can happen is what happens with kids who have uh, a lazy eye. Um, if it, what that means is that they have an eye that's not tracking with the other one does anybody know what happens over time if you don't correct that, if the, if the images are too different? What happens is that, that the weaker eye will begin to lose vision. It begins to, the sight begins to grow dim, and even though it has all the physiological apparatus for sight, if it's not corrected, the dominant eye will take over. How many of you have seen marriages where that happened? Where one partner calls the shots, where the other one is like, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear, um, loses the capacity for vision because there's not that cooperation. This tool invites you to come up with a proposal that honors the differing perspectives, priorities, needs, and problem-solving strategies of both people. Um, the first person th- going through the process hasn't have the, had the advantage of hearing what the other one has to say but can still take, st- take a stab at a proposal. For instance, if it's the, the furniture issue that I brought up earlier, I might say, what I propose is that we, um, that we spend only $1,500 right now because we've got so many expenses with the move. Or I might say, what I propose is that we don't buy anything until we've lived in the house for 60 days and kind of get a feel for it. Um, or I might propose that we sit down with our... Um, our tax guy, before we make a decision and find out for sure how much we're going to either have to pay or get back on April the 15th. Um, there, there are a lot of proposals that will move us toward resolution. It doesn't have to be the final, your final answer, but something that will move you toward resolution. If the issue is where, where to send the kids for school. Um, the proposal might be to check out the private school nearby or to find out how much it would cost or to look into a homeschool curriculum. Again, the proposal is something that will move you toward resolution. The final stage, the foot of the cross, where it's anchored in the soil, so to speak, is where I stand. We talked about connection, confession, course correction, and conviction. At the end of the day, what we want to, uh, where we want to stand is that no issue is more important than the relationship itself, right? That at the end of the day... My commitment is not to have my way. My commitment is not to make you happy. My commitment is to bring everything that we are to the foot of the cross and surrender it to God for His purpose in making us one. Because whether we're we're just members of the body of Christ or members of a family or members of a team at work or one-flesh members of a marriage, God's intention is to bring everything together in Christ. That's what the Bible says. And so at the end of the day, making a statement of commitment to the relationship is what it's all about. Saying something like, you know what? No matter what what decision we make about this issue, what I want you to know is we are going to be okay. I am not going to, you know, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to beat you up over it. I'm not going to withdraw from you. We are going to find a solution that we can both live with by God's grace. Isn't that cool? Um, Because as you go through the process, you start out kind of far away from your your partner. There's quite a gap. As you go through the process, you're bridging the gap. You're getting closer to resolution, but more importantly, you're getting closer to understanding and your commitment to hanging in there in spite of whatever issue may have arisen. Um, If you'll try this thing, and it's a little awkward at first. It feels kind of funny to, you know, stand and go through the thing. But if you will try it, it will begin to change the way you think about conflict. Like Ruth said, the word crisis, danger, plus opportunity. Every conflict is the same way. There's danger. It could get ugly. You could say some things up there that might be very hurtful. But at the end of the day, there's an opportunity. And coming to, um, coming to understanding is more important than coming to agreement, Right? That's what, it, that's what this, the, the, the basis of this conflict resolution tool is, is to bring us to a place of understanding and, um, and commitment. Okay, let us, it's, uh, it's right at noon, so let's draw this to a close. Um, any burning question that cannot wait till after lunch? Good, I love that. Um, Let's uh, have a brief prayer for our lunch and have you go grab your lunch, um, and um, you can eat here in the room, or if you want to go outside, I don't know what the weather is doing right now, or out in the hall, whatever. But I would suggest that you get back um, in 30 minutes, um, because there's much more. (laughs) So let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you. We love you for so many reasons but we love you for the cross that you made peace through the precious blood of your son. Lord, thank you that every crisis, every conflict is an invita- presents an invitation for growth, for strength, for courage, for perseverance, for faithfulness, for love. And Lord, we just pray that we would engage Engage our our pain, engage our grief, engage crisis and conflict in a way that honors your life in us. Lord, bless the food that we're going to eat, the conversation that accompanies it. it. Lord, thank you for those who've provided for it. And thank you for um, everyone in this room. Lord, feed us with your word. Feed us with good physical food as well as spiritual. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.